Open your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, we in verses 1 to 12 this morning. Matthew 3, 1 to 12. It, it might do us some good to, to refresh our memories on where we are in the book of Matthew. So we're still in the introductory section of the book of the book of Matthew's Gospel. And if you were to look at Matthew's Gospel like any other book, then you would expect the author up front, the beginning parts of his book, to introduce to us what the story is about, to tell us what the story is going to be about, to set our expectations, to define some of the main characters in the story, and really set us up so that we understand what's going to happen later on. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing right here in the beginning. And in Matthew chapter 3, we're still in that introductory section of the Gospel of Matthew. And we saw several weeks ago, many weeks now, I feel like, uh, that as Matthew opens his Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1. And it's with that genealogy that he really tips his hand as to what he's doing. He tells us right out of the gate what his main point is going to be. He's going to make the point that this Jesus Christ, who is the main character of this gospel, is the rightful heir to the throne of David, and he is the promised seed of Abraham. He tells us that in the first verse, right out of the gate. And so the genealogy in Matthew 1 points us to that conclusion that Jesus is indeed the rightful heir to the throne. However, he's not simply making the case that Jesus is the next in line of kings. That's not merely his point. It's not simply that he's one in a long list of kings. He's making the argument that he is the king. He is the final authority. The buck stops with him. And you'll remember at the close of chapter 1, if you don't, you can look there with me. At the close of chapter 1, Matthew is quoting the words of Isaiah and he says, You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what we learn about Jesus in the first chapter is that he's a rightful heir to the throne of David, but he's no ordinary king. No, in fact, he is the king. He is God with us. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is born of the Virgin Mary. What came about is truly miraculous. What we have standing in front of us is someone that is fully God, fully man. And he is coming to live with us. He is literally God with us. So in chapter 2, we see that the news of this newborn king reaches the ears of the current king of the Jews, Herod. And Herod's not really happy about somebody else being called king of the Jews. So what does he do with this king? He sees him as an imminent threat. He decides to put him to death. It serves to foreshadow for us that this true King Jesus, who's bringing in this new kingdom, is a threat to all earthly establishments. He's a threat to every kingdom. As citizens of all kingdoms across the entire globe begin to submit to Jesus' reign and come under His authority, we no longer see the state 
as our ultimate authority, but Christ as ultimate authority. Now, you can see how to the people in power, this would be a threat. So what does Herod do? He tries to put him to death. But this also serves Matthew's larger point that he's making. He's showing Jesus as the new Israel. Herod goes to put to death all these babies and, and, and Joseph is warned in a dream and they get down to Egypt so that, as Matthew points out there in verse 15 of chapter 2, so that out of Egypt he could call his son. So that out of Egypt God could call his son. Where he had called his son Israel out of Egypt in the past, now he calls his true son Christ out of Egypt, serving his point. Jesus is the new Israel. Something we'll explore later on as well. So now we're in chapter 3, and you'll notice in chapter 3, even if you just look over it or cursory glance over it, you'll see that the scene has shifted away from the family of Christ, and now we're looking squarely at this one man, John the Baptist. But make no mistake, Matthew is still providing for us somewhat of an apologetic on Christ, because he's answering the question, how do we know that this guy, this Jesus, how do we know he's the one? How do I know he's the one? Other people have claimed it in the past. How do I know this one is the one? John the Baptist serves to prove that this Jesus is the one. So remember, chapter 2 ends with Joseph and Mary taking up residence in a town called Nazareth. And so it says that about that time, at the very beginning, in those days... As chapter 3 begins, it's the days when Jesus was, was living in Nazareth. There came this man, John the Baptist. We're obviously much further on in the future, right, from where we last left chapter 2. John the Baptist, who is only a few months older than Jesus, is now on the scene, and he is beginning to preach. And so we're about 25 to 30 years on into the future when John begins or is in the midst of his ministry. And we'll see even next week where Jesus comes onto the scene. And so since it's been a, a few weeks since we've looked at this, let me just remind you culturally of the kind of culture that John is preaching in the midst of. Now remember, first of all, that the Jewish people had been without a prophet for at least 400 years. In fact, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament, in our Old Testament. It's also chronologically the last prophet that came to the Jews. About 400 years before John the Baptist comes on the scene, Malachi uh, is, is the prophet to Israel. And since that day, there has not been a prophet between Malachi and John the Baptist. And so during that intermittent time, there's obviously tons of wars, tons of things that have happened to the Jewish people during the midst of those 400 years, and yet they haven't had a prophet to come in and actually tell them first that these things are going to happen, and two, what these things mean when they happen. That's the function of a prophet, isn't it, in the Old Testament? is to come in and either tell you what is going to happen or tell you from the mouth of God what these things mean when they happen. So the Jewish people are 400 years without a prophet and it has been notably missing. And you'll notice that right towards the beginning of chapter 3 where we are there in verse 3, we see Matthew's claim that this is he, 
This John the Baptist and is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, uh, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make, sh- make his paths straight. So we have this claim right at the very beginning of our passage this morning. That though the people have been without a prophet for the last 400 years, John the Baptist is one. That's a big deal. Culturally speaking, this is a big deal. The second little oddity when we look at the Jewish culture about this time is what we're seeing in this text is it's it's surrounded or it's centered on baptism. Now, we're Baptists. Baptism is baked into our DNA. We get baptism. We look at the passage here in chapter 3 and we're like, "I, I get it. I get baptism. In fact, you put a white tent around John the Baptist and we got the first New Testament revival right there. Right? We understand it. We look at it. It, it makes sense to us. It's, it's part of our DNA. But baptism isn't a normal thing for a Jew. In fact, up to this point, we have no record of any Jew ever being baptized. This is a new thing for the Jews to hear John the Baptist preaching repentance and baptizing people. Where the Jews are familiar with baptism is baptizing Gentiles when they convert to Judaism. See, there's a a washing, a purifying process that takes place when a Gentile converts to Judaism. They, They were washed as a symbol of discarding an old life of sin and unrighteousness. And they emerged from the water with a new dedication towards a new relationship with God. So here we have a Jew, John the Baptist, standing in a a river, baptizing other Jews. A practice reserved for Gentiles up to that point. So if you think about this in in that cultural context, in regards to their relationship with God, John isn't simply meaning, hey, you've wandered away, turn and come back. He's preaching conversion. Be totally and radically transformed from your old way of life to a completely, totally different new way of life. You are washed as a Gentile would be converting to Judaism. With that as our background, let's read our passage. Matthew chapter 3, 1 to 12. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As I I see it, there is one central theme that runs throughout really the New Testament, but particularly the Gospels, and even more so the Gospel of Matthew And that is what we see here in John's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is the central issue in the Gospels and particularly in the book of Matthew. In fact, before we even really meet John the Baptist or learn anything about him, we don't even know this guy in the Gospel of Matthew. We're introduced first to his teaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the passage that we're looking at shows two different reactions to that preaching. Two completely and totally opposite reactions to what John is preaching. What Matthew is giving us in this passage is proof that the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. And the first proof that he offers is the messenger that is delivering the message. That's the first proof that the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. And the second proof is the reaction of the audience to this message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. But we're going to cover both parts. The messenger and the message itself. But before we do, let's ask the question. What is the kingdom of heaven? And what does it mean that it's at hand? Kingdom of heaven is a really important phrase. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's used 32 times in Matthew. So on average, more than one time per chapter, the kingdom of heaven is used. And not only that, but the first teaching out of Jesus' mouth. If you look forward into chapter 417, just look at 417 real quick, or write it down in your notes, you'll see what is Jesus' first words out of his mouth when he begins teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew even tells us in that same verse that Jesus began to preach. So everywhere Jesus was going, the message that was coming out of his mouth first and foremost was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That undergirds all of Jesus' teaching. Everything that we read in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is saying, should be filtered through the lens of repent, therefore, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The message of repentance summarizes all of the content of Jesus' preaching. So what is the kingdom of heaven? I think it's important to see how other Gospels record what Jesus is preaching. The content of Jesus' message. In Mark, Mark records Jesus preaching, The time is fulfilled, and listen to this, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's clear that when we look at the parallels that exist inside the gospels, 
inside the, the four Gospels, but obviously Matthew, Mark, and Luke, since they're the most similar. As we look at those, those parallels, and there's many more than just that one, it's clear that where Matthew prefers the phrase kingdom of heaven, the other Gospels prefer the phrase kingdom of God. But the term effectively means the same thing. Now, the reason why I think that's an important point to make is because there is a large stream, uh, especially in the mid-1900s of dispensationalism, that saw it as two different terms, that they meant two different things, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. But I think when you look at the overwhelming evidence that's present in the Gospels as they parallel each other, it seems that they mean exactly the same thing. But the reason why that is helpful for us, I think, is because when we hear the phrase kingdom of God, it brings something a little bit different to mind. When we hear the term heaven, we tend to get caught up into where we go when we die. And we start thinking about just a place that, that God lives, a, maybe a floaty place, and when we die we go, we go live up there in, in this sort of floaty, ethereal kind of area. And our, our mind gets kind of trapped into that way of thinking about things. And that's not at all what's being presented to us in the gospel here. He's really presenting to us the kingdom of God that is coming down and, uh, to, to earth. And when we hear the term kingdom of God, it brings to mind God, a picture of God sitting on a throne, dwelling in his kingdom, ruling and reigning over his subjects. It's God's kingdom. You might hear it or think of it as God's rule. It's God's rule. God's rule is at hand. What does it mean that God's rule is at hand? It means that it's here now. God's promised saving reign is coming down now to earth. That he is once and for all coming to save his people. That's what it means. So John is, is, comes in and he's preaching repentance. Which you hear uh, sometimes people will say is simply a change of mind. Repentance being a change of mind. But that's, that's certainly part of it, but that's not exactly it. Repentance is a radical lifestyle transformation. It's a complete and total makeover. A drastic change of heart. It's literally leaving one way of thinking in favor of another. It's more emphatic than simply just turning around. It's powerful. It's complete lifestyle transformation. It's more than simply the Jews have wandered away. And you need to come back to God. John is preaching so that they'll be saved. So that they'll enter into... God's saving reign as king. God's requiring them to radically change their lifestyle and submit to his authority. And without repentance and this radical change, they're not even part of the kingdom of God. Think about that for a second. The Jewish people are being told, radically change your life or you're not a part of the kingdom of God. But then you'd have to ask the question, how do I know that the kingdom of God really is at hand? 
How do I know that it really is at hand? And Matthew offers us two proofs that this is the real thing. The first proof is the deliverer of the message. The one who is delivering the message. Look there in verse 3. John is introduced to us and it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then in verse 4, he's identified as wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And we're told his food was locust and wild honey. And that sounds a little weird, right? Not just because of what he's eating, but that Matthew would bother to tell us. Hey, think about that for a second. Of all the details that you would want to give us, why do I care what he was wearing and what he ate? In spite of what it may appear, Matthew isn't overly concerned with John's attire. He's not really concerned with John's diet. He is showing us that John the Baptist is Elijah. That's what he's showing to us. That John the Baptist is the new and better Elijah. 2 Kings 1.8. 2 Kings 1.8, you can write that down. You don't have to turn there. You can write that down. 2 Kings 1.8 describes Elijah the prophet like this. See if it sounds familiar. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Now, I don't think that's just a coincidence. I don't think Matthew wrote this gospel and sent it out, and his readers read it, and some enterprising young Jewish student came running back to him and said, Matthew, you have no idea what you just did. You accidentally quoted 2 Kings 1.8. Did you know that? It's incredible. Look at that. I don't think Matthew heard him and said, huh, I guess you're right. Who knew? Matthew is intentionally telling us that John's diet was consistent of a prophet from the wilderness. He ate what was allowed in, under Jewish law, but that his attire was the same as Elijah. In fact, John the Baptist is the new Elijah. And there's a reason why that's tremendously important. Turn back a couple of pages to your left to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Just a, it should just be a couple of pages to your left. There you'll find Malachi chapter 4. And I know we've read this before, and we'll do it actually again. It bears repeating because it's tremendously important. Why would Matthew bother to make the point that John the Baptist is the new Elijah? You look at Malachi chapter 4, we'll be in verse 5. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I will send you... This is the, keep in mind, let me back up for just a second. These are the last words of the Old Testament. This is the last promise that God gives to the children of Israel before there's a closure for 400 years, right? The last words. This is what God says to them. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So essentially the last chronological promise that the Lord makes to the nation of Israel before the great and awesome, or depending on your translation, the terrible day of the Lord comes. I will send you Elijah. The disciples, by the way, are aware of this teaching. They know of this passage. Turn forward to Matthew chapter 17. This is jumping way ahead. Again, we've done this before, but I, I think it bears repeating. 
The disciples are aware of this. And remember Matthew chapter 17 is where they're coming down from the mountain of of transfiguration. They've seen uh, Jesus transfigured before them and he's just told them that he's going to die, which totally messes with their heads. And there's a lot to that that we'll talk about later on. But there's something very simple that's laid out here for them. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 10, he says, The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So the disciples at least know of the scribes' teaching from Malachi. That before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. And Jesus is now telling them, surprise, Elijah has already come and he was John the Baptist. So Matthew already knows that this is what Jesus is going to do. And Matthew's description all the way back in chapter 3 is, is, is attempting to prepare us, the reader, for when Jesus springs this revelation on us later on in the book. That John the Baptist is the new Elijah, coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And what does that prove to us about Jesus? That he is the Messiah, right? So how are you and I assured that the rule and the reign of God is really and truly invading the earth here in the birth of this child. Because Elijah has come first to restore all things. That's how. He is, through the preaching of repentance, turning the hearts of people back to God. Now, there's two things I want us to observe in this text about the response of that preaching. Two things I want us to observe about the response of John's preaching. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First, citizens of the kingdom of heaven respond in repentance. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven respond in repentance. Look at the first group that's mentioned there in verses 5 and 6. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now we're not told who all was included in this group, except it says all Judea and all the region around the Jordan. But obviously that doesn't mean every single individual. It just means that throughout the entire land, people had heard of John and they were coming into the river and they were confessing their sins. John is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're coming into the river confessing their sins. Now there is only a slight difference between repentance and confession. In fact, they go together like hand in glove. And the, but there, there is technically a slight difference. And sometimes even in the Bible, you'll see repentance used as the whole package for everything. I repent. I repent of my sin. Right? It, implied in that is a confession that you were, you were wrong. Right? Uh, and sometimes confession is, is used in the same way. But there is a slight difference. Repentance is this radical change of heart where you're totally transforming your entire life into a new way of thinking. Confession, on the other hand, is necessarily the fruit that comes from seeing your sin, turning away from it, having this radical heart change, and it's then voicing to the Lord exactly where you went wrong. 
It's owning up to where you have sinned. Paul tells Simon the magician in Acts 8.22, he says, he tells him, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. You remember Simon the magician, he wanted to get the power that the apostles had. He wanted to have, he saw them healing and doing miraculous things and he thought, hey, I want some of that, a little bit of that action. And he tells Peter this, he makes the mistake of telling Peter this. He didn't know Peter had just been responsible for the death of two people back in chapter 5. And so he, uh, he foolishly asks, uh, asks Peter this question. And, and Peter says, uh, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. And then he says, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. So I think that's what's implied there is the confession step. There is the repentance. See the fact that what you have done is wicked and turn from it and then pray to the Lord owning up to the things that are in your heart that cause you to go this direction. That's the confession step. All of that is to say that these people are coming into the Jordan and they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized by John. Con confession and then baptism are these visible fruits that come from a repentant lifestyle, from repenting from John's preaching, baptism and confession. Now remember too that Matthew is presenting this as evidence that the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. The kingdom of God truly is descending on the people of God. What is the proper response to God drawing near? Ask yourself that question. Think about it for just a second. What is the proper response to God drawing near to people? You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Do you remember what Isaiah's reaction is? Remember Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne. Train of his robe fills the temple. He sees around God, seraphim, that are singing, holy, holy, holy. What is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is confession. As soon as God draws near, Isaiah immediately begins to lay everything on the table. Not only his own sin, but the sin of the people around him. There's this phrase that people used to use a while back, which was, God can't be in the presence of sin question sometimes the truth of that since he is so often throughout the Bible in the presence of sinful humanity. I think it's probably better to say sin can't be in the presence of God without being exposed for what it really is. And I think that's what Isaiah is seeing there in Isaiah chapter 6 is being exposed. So if John is preaching that the kingdom of God is here, that God is really drawing near to his people, he is coming down and he's beginning his saving reign. And the presence of the Lord is really here. What would we expect to be the reaction of the people? But confession and repentance of sin. 
sin should be the foremost concern of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Listen, sin is not all we're about as Christians. What we're about is forgiveness. That's the heartbeat of the gospel, is the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. But you must understand, before we can actually understand what forgiveness means, we have to agree on what the sin is. We have to preach it. We have to proclaim it. We have to define it and identify what that sin is. But you also have to understand that if we remain committed to the historical interpretation of the Word of God, and if I continue to preach it from the pulpit, and we continue to affirm documents that affirm what, what we believe to be true about sin, then we're going to receive pushback. It will not be widely accepted. But it's pushback that's necessary. We have to define it and we have to agree on its terms before we can tell them, turn to Jesus and be forgiven. Now there's a difference between being committed to the truth and being a jerk. We also have to remember that. We're not out to pick fights just so that we can put some pin on our chest that says, persecuted. Sometimes you're just a jerk, and you don't need to be a jerk. That's not what we're about either. But we do have to fight to clarify where we stand on sin, because it is a service to God's people. I have no doubt in my mind John the Baptist would be ostracized from our society just as he was 2,000 years ago from his own. It's a service to God's people. Because there were some that rejected him. But plenty turned from their sin and confessed and repented and had a radical lifestyle change. The pattern of our church and our public witness must be always and ever in calling people to repentance. So through the word of God, our sin is illuminated. It's shown to us for what it really is. And then we're able to turn from it and confess and have this radical lifestyle change. And that's true of people that are lost right now, that are coming to Christ. They need to hear that this is sin and you need to turn from it and come back to the Lord. A radical lifestyle change. But it's also true of Christians as well. We get lost in the weeds. We sin on a daily basis and we need to be reminded that we have sin in our own life. And we need to turn from it and confess that sin and return to the Lord. It's true of Christians as well. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven repent. The second observation that I want us to make here in this passage is that judgment awaits those who refuse repentance. There's a, another response here in this passage to John's preaching, and it's typified by the Pharisees and Sadducees that are on the shore. Now understand what's happening in this scene. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to his baptism, coming to John's baptism. And it says, as it says there in verse 7, but they're not getting in the river 
and confessing their sins. You understand where they are in the situation here. They are standing on the banks of the river. And that's evident there from the descriptions. You see, the first group, they were, were baptized by him. The Pharisees, it says, were coming to his baptism. Totally different. A different state of affairs that's happening here in this scene. They're watching, and John is not the least bit happy about it. He calls them a brood of vipers, a term that we'll see Jesus use later on in this same gospel. And he asks them a question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, in that question, they're snark. John is being snarky to the people on the shore, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not get along. You need to understand that. They are political enemies. They interpret the Bible completely different from one another, and yet they're in a governing body called the Sanhedrin together. So, very similar to Congress, all right? Republicans and Democrats are standing there on the shore, all right? Together they are Congress, okay? They're standing there on the shore. They do not get along. And so what does that tell us then if they're both together standing in unison on the shore watching John's baptism? They're watching him. They're coming to check him out to make sure he's on the up and up. We've heard a disturbance out there by the Jordan. We need you to go out there and investigate and see what is going on. But John's question is meant to draw attention from the people that are standing in the water to the shore, these people who are not getting in the water. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The truth is, nobody they don't believe there is wrath to come. The people that are in the water believe there is wrath to come. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Drawing attention to the fact that they're not getting into the water. They don't believe there is wrath to come. That there is sin to be dealt with. But in verse 8, John, ever the teacher, uses this as a teachable moment for all the people listening in and watching. And it's in verse 8 that I think it turns really scary for everybody, myself included. Because from verse 8 onward, John is explaining what a genuine act of repentance looks like. And to put it in very simple terms, it bears fruit. True and genuine repentance bears fruit. Repentance is proven over time. There are plenty of people that will justify their own standing before the Lord and even justify their own sin by saying, well, I was baptized when I was nine years old. As if a pool of water has saving power. It doesn't. And that's just not biblical. Jesus Christ is the only one that saves. And he has commanded us when we come to him, we come, as, John, as, as Mark points out, uh, to come to him in repentance and faith, trusting that he is the eternal son of God, that he is truly God, truly man, that he's God in the flesh, that he has died on our behalf and he suffered the punishment for my sin, the punishment that I deserve. He took it on his own shoulders. And repentance is turning from that life of sin that I once lived in. And there is fruit that will come from that. 
If I've truly turned away from a lifestyle of pursuing sin, then there's going to be fruit that is evidence of the fact that I am a new creature, that I am following a path of righteousness. And of course, that doesn't mean that you no longer sin. Nobody's saying that. It does mean, however, that sin is an irritant to you. The Holy Spirit gives you an allergy to sin, if you will. It tells you what your sin is. The Holy Spirit then convicts you of sin. And by His grace, you continue to turn from it time and time and time again. There is not a category for a Christian that happily lives in a sinful lifestyle. It does not happen. There is no category for that individual as a Christian. Now, to be sure, if we took snapshots of all of our lives at any given moment, we would certainly see lots of times where we dive headlong into sin. Where we enjoy it, we pursue it, we lose our wits, we go into fits of rage, moments of lust, slips of the tongue, gossip, slander, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. We may even have a good long string of time in that sin. But if we held the frames all together of our life, it's a film strip, what would be true of a Christian is that there would be gradual and continued growth over time. And it's not just physical maturity. It's not just mental maturity. It's actually growing in distaste for sin. Steadily over time, growing in distaste for sin. You would see things in your snapshots that you struggled with long ago that maybe you no longer struggle with now, but you've picked up whole new ones, all kinds of new struggles and temptations that you have. But over time, your taste for sin has grown paler. And then you would see gradual turning time and time again from those sins and confessing those sins to the Lord. John reminds the crowd of what he's here to do. He says that in verse 11 and 12. Look with me there. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is saying he's the predecessor. I'm coming first, and I'm preparing you to repent from your sins. But even though God is requiring his people right now to be washed, both spiritually and physically... The physical washing being a sign of the internal repentance, the the spiritual repentance that's happening there. But this is just the beginning. There's one that's coming after me. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Meaning he's going to purify the people that have the Holy Spirit. Fire being a, a purification process. He's going to give to you the Holy Spirit, which is going to lead to that gradual distaste of sin. But there's another fire waiting for the chaff an unquenchable fire. Because for those who refuse to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, there is a judgment that awaits. It's eternal fire. 
And it does not serve to purify, but to destroy. There are two types of people in their response to the kingdom of heaven. There's wax and there's stone. As the kingdom of heaven gradually descends, it's crushing weight on top of people. There are some that respond to that weight like wax. They're molded and shaped by it. They conform to its pressure. And what is left is the signet ring of the king who has branded his people. They're marked by repentance and humility and trust. And there are other people stone, who choose instead to face the full weight of God's kingdom, standing unmoved. But they will soon find out that the weight of God's rule is crushing. The question is, who are you? Who are you? Are you the kind that continues on in sin as if these words don't apply to you? Do you continue to ignore repeated warnings from other people that say, hey, what you're in is a sinful pattern of behavior? And do you continue to do the same things you did before, not ever recognizing them as sin? If so, that may indicate that you're not a Christian. Or are you the kind of person that when you see words of conviction laid before you in the Scriptures, you recognize the things that are going on in your life that are sinful and you turn to God and you confess that you desire more than anything to escape from darkness and pursue light, pursue righteousness. Those are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's how we should be marked. Individually pursuing lives of holiness, living as though we are truly branded by the weight of God's rule. then there's also a corporate aspect to this. So individually, we should be living lives of holiness, but together as believers, as a church, how are we holding one another, to get, uh, one another together, pursuing repentance together as believers? Holding one another accountable to what we say we believe. Are we able not only to identify sins in our own life, but come alongside our brothers and sisters and warn them and say, this, what you're pursuing, is sinful behavior. You need to turn from it. And continuing to help them identify darkness in their own life. If you're like me, and I think you are, we need people in our life to point those things out. That not only see it, but warn us. Because I'm afraid that the stakes are just too high.
The last thing I want is somebody to come in here and to sit in these pews every single Sunday, pretending as though they're a Christian, ignoring a call to repentance. And yet assume that they're going to stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and He's going to welcome them in. Why? Because they were children of Abraham? Because I was baptized when I was nine? It doesn't work. I would much rather us have awkward conversations even now over issues of sinful behavior so that in the day of judgment we would all be spared. In a moment I'm going to ask my ushers to come forward and take up the offering today. What I would ask is during this time where we sing that you and I would consider the ways in which we are pursuing darkness and straying from the Lord. You are empowered right where you sit to confess those sins to Him and walk out that door different than when you came in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a warning. You have told us time and time again in Your Word what sin is, how to define it, and how to live lives of holiness. We know those that have been marked by forgiveness continue to pursue repentance. So I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit's power, you would produce that fruit in our lives. That we would desire no more of the darkness no more of the sin that so easily entangles us, but we would desire holiness. That we would find that joyful. That we would find time in your word and time with you as entertaining. Pray you would produce in this congregation a holy people. That are desirous of righteous living and desirous to give other people the gift of forgiveness that we have found in you. Do that in us, through us, to us, and in our city in spite of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.